You know what I love most about our generation? It's the fact that we, as a collective, have absolutely no chill. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is above being memed. We've done it to the President of the United States at one of his rallies. We collectively started simping over one dude who was just a little too tall dressed in all black who showed up to a protest. And while this one flew just a little bit more under the radar than the others, it still counts. We have started making memes out of literal health issues. Seriously, it is a meme to have a nicotine addiction. You don't believe me? It was a trending sound on TikTok just a few months ago to say, Ayo, nicotine addiction check, and then proceed to just push all of one's jewels, puff bars, and other variations on vape pens into a box in videos that would last sometimes up to 30 seconds long of just one after another, after another, after another. And look, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I, okay, scratch that. I am kind of here how to tell you how to live your life, but this is a bit of a problem because you see a lot of us have this perception that vaping having been originated as a way to get people off of smoking is therefore a safer alternative. And while yes, you're not pumping 300 carcinogens into your body the way you would with a cigarette, it still has its own disastrous consequences to say the least. But that's what we're here to talk about this week. Sometimes you have to understand the vested interest that corporations have in making you believe certain things. And that's why this week, Uncle Alex has got you in terms of breaking down all the nasty stuff that's going down inside not only your vape pods, but also what's going on inside the tobacco industry itself. So this week, we're taking on big tobacco in a way that deconstructs not only its history, but its present ledger of lies that they're trying to get you to believe. This way, you can make some more informed decisions for yourself that are probably a lot better for you in the long term. Because as we're going to go over, your lungs aren't the only thing at stake here. What? Confused? Bro, don't worry. I got you. This week on the Elithia Podcast, we're going all in on big tobacco. Stay tuned. Let's get into it. Hi, my name's Alex Joseph, your friendly neighborhood sleep-deprived pre-med, here to make science a little more user-friendly and the world a little less full of lies. This is the Aletheia Podcast. Can we just take a moment, before we go into all the modern-day bullshit, to talk about how incredibly screwed up tobacco's history within the Western world is? Because you see, what started out as something that perhaps was innocent enough was soon quickly perverted into something of monstrous proportions. As with most things that European explorers quote-unquote discovered, tobacco had been used by native cultures in North and South America for centuries. Usually, in their cultures, it was a kind of tribal practice, often used with a spiritual association. I can't speak to all its different uses in all the various cultures because, again, I don't belong to any of these groups. 
But from the preliminary research that you can do for yourself online rather easily, you'll find that it was often associated with spiritual rituals or even healing practices. Tobacco was in some cultures viewed as a type of medicine. However, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and decided to murder a whole bunch of people for the sake of profit, he came across these, what he called, strange leaves and decided, after seeing how the native cultures used them, to bring them back to Europe, where they soon proliferated through Europe, Asia, and the rest of the Old World, as a cash crop unlike anything the world had seen up until that point. And it all went downhill from there. For one thing, just like cotton and other cash crops, tobacco farming resulted in an increase in the use of slaves. This was especially true in some of those first areas that European settlers moved to, including Santo Domingo, which was one of the first sites of actual tobacco cultivation by settlers in the New World. However, as early as 1621, tobacco was being farmed commercially in the Americas. That's right. In the Western world, tobacco farming is older than America itself, which is absolutely insane. Unfortunately, in this country, our relationship with tobacco skyrocketed for years after the fact. And that has a lot to do with the way tobacco is actually marketed. But hold up, wait. Before we get into that, what's so bad about it anyway? Because you've heard that tobacco causes cancer and has a bunch of other effects. And that's true. Although I may have exaggerated a little bit at the beginning of this episode, tobacco doesn't actually contain 300 carcinogens. The fact remains that 70 of them have been isolated from cigarette smoke. Cigarettes contain shredded tobacco leaves, which are mostly used for one additive in particular. Although all 70 of those chemicals are quite dangerous for you, the one that people mostly smoke cigarettes for is not actually one of them. You see, the pleasurable effects that are derived from using tobacco in any form usually come from the fact that it's laced with a chemical known as nicotine, which you've probably heard of. What you might not have known about it is that it's a chemical that stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system. That's the part of your nervous system that controls things like digestion or breathing, usually things that you do automatically without conscious thought. The reason it feels good to a lot of people to smoke is that the presence of nicotine in the body can cause a dopamine release. Dopamine, often referred to as the happiness drug, as the chemical that your brain releases as a neurotransmitter every time you do something that is usually beneficial to your survival. Naturally speaking, that's why you get a dopamine release every time you eat or have sex. These types of things are intended to release dopamine in order to encourage you to do them again. However, certain behaviors and substances can cause this release as well. Yes, you heard me correctly, behaviors as well. This is why it's often possible for people to develop an addiction to things that you might not think of as all that addicting, including exercise, the act of eating itself, or sex. These are very real addictions, but how does one develop that anyway? Well, you see, an addiction, contrary to the belief of your 85-year-old grandmother, is not actually a choice. Yes, the initial choice to take a drug is all on a person. But never underestimate the power of peer pressure, first of all, and secondly, you don't know a person's story. Any number of things might have turned them to try and seek some kind of comfort in a drug or a behavior. Regardless, no matter what the behavior is, 
It all starts with that one key aspect we mentioned earlier, the dopamine release. Not a lot is understood about addiction, and a lot of the research is still ongoing. But what scientists seem to think is happening currently is that all of this hinges on linking. This involves a portion of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. This is often thought of as the brain's quote-unquote pleasure center. It's located under the anterior, meaning the front, portion of your cerebral cortex. The reason this part of the brain is called the pleasure center is because this is the part responsible for why you feel good after doing certain things, like eating, having sex, or engaging in addictive behaviors. But here's the thing. This area in particular is impacted by dopamine releases when you do these behaviors. And dopamine as a neurotransmitter often interacts with a different neurotransmitter called glutamate. And that's where things can go extremely wrong. You see, glutamate, after it interacts with dopamine, can start to interact with other parts of the brain that influence our learning processes. Meaning that after excessive indulgence of an addictive behavior or substance, our brain's pleasure center can get linked with areas of the brain that are associated with learning. Meaning, you will learn to associate whatever behavior you were doing with the same pleasurable feeling you get after eating food, getting a good night's sleep, having sex, or doing the other things that are extremely important for us as human beings to do. This becomes a problem because that's why an addiction, according to this hypothesis, can start to feel like a compulsion. Because this is the thing about addiction. Addiction, by definition, is doing something very much against your will. It's not being able to stop engaging in a behavior even when you want to, to the point where it takes away your ability to engage in other necessary things in your life because that is how much you are compelled to engage in the behavior. And this is no joke. Because regardless of the underlying mechanism, one thing that is clear is that nicotine is one of the single most addictive substances that mankind has ever fooled around with. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, despite the fact that a majority of smokers want to quit, only 6% are able to do so. This has to do with a complex reality about nicotine. The fact is, unlike a lot of other addictive substances, the high that one gets from nicotine can peak usually only about 10 seconds after initial inhalation and subsides in a matter of seconds. This is really important because it further reinforces one of the most powerful drivers of addictive behaviors. That is the alteration of an addictive stimulus threshold. Let's break that down in common language. Basically, one of the main drivers of addiction is the fact that when a substance produces a powerful response in the nucleus accumbens, your brain's pleasure center, your brain will compel you to do that behavior using that substance more and more by rewiring itself such that you need to increase the threshold of the stimulus that you're using in order to develop the same response. In English, as you use an addictive substance more and more, you need to start using more and more of it each time you use it in order to get the same high. And in a drug where the high can only last for a matter of seconds, this is a particularly huge problem. 
This is how you end up with people smoking packs of cigarettes a day. Because after years and years of smoking, you need to be smoking that much to even get the high that you initially got from just a single cigarette a day. It's that bad after a certain period of time. And while we say not to smoke, because tobacco smoke contains up to 70 different known carcinogens, the fact is that the nicotine found within it is the same as the nicotine that you're finding within vaping devices. And that is where the concern comes, because addictive compulsions in any form are extremely detrimental. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that nicotine alone can actually cause cognitive decline with continued usage over a period of years, meaning that the more you smoke, your ability to do logical reasoning, learn, or even memorize can actually be severely impaired. But hold up, why are people starting to think that vaping is safer in that case? I mean, wasn't that the whole idea behind it in the first place? Well, you see, that's where we get into the really troubling history of the tobacco industry as a whole. You see, everybody knows that smoking dramatically increases your risk of contracting lung cancer. It's common knowledge at this point. This is actually one of the few places where the Department of Education has done a really good job. According to data collected by the United States Department of Health and Human Services, smoking rates among high school seniors in a period from 1976 to 2018, decreased all the way from 29% to 3.6%. That trend, by the way, hasn't even slowed down. In 2011, approximately 15.8% of all high school students had smoked a cigarette in the last 30 days. But in 2019, when the CDC conducted the same survey, they found that that number had come down to 5.8%. That is a reduction of almost two-thirds. That is thanks to a widespread campaign to associate the use of cigarettes with the development of cancer. But hold up, this wasn't always the case. In fact, you would find that back in the 1950s, Smoking was a widely accepted cultural phenomenon. You see, during the early 20th century, smoking tobacco from a pipe or through a cigar were all fairly common practices that had been around for many, many years. But it was during this time that the modern, most addictive and widespread form of tobacco use rose to prevalence. Cigarette smoking became particularly popular during this time largely because of its convenience. Automatic rolling machines and the fact that they came in packs which could be smoked many at a time allowed for easy access to the nicotine release provided by cigarettes. However, this is where we really started to see an explosion of cigarette use throughout the United States. In fact, according to a report published by the NCBI, in 1953, 47% of American adults were smoking cigarettes regularly. That, by the way, included about half of all practicing physicians at the time. That's right, half of all doctors were smoking at this time. But before you ask, well, hold on, why would they do something so stupid? I mean, doesn't everyone know it causes lung cancer? The thing is, back then, that wasn't common knowledge. Amid rising concerns over the possible health effects of cigarette smoking, which at the time weren't widely known, during the later part of the 1940s as well as much of the 1950s, 
advertisements for cigarettes started to feature physicians as a prominent part of their campaign. Starting in 1946, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, the brand responsible for Camel cigarettes, started running an ad campaign that stated that more physicians smoked Camel brand cigarettes than any other brand. Now, let's keep in mind, we're gonna go into all the shady shit that these companies have been doing, but this was probably some of the first evidence we had that everything was going to hell. Because you see, these campaigns started to arise in the midst of a growing public health concern over the unknown effects of cigarette smoking. There was starting to be some preliminary research that stated it might not be as beneficial as people claimed. At the time, some people thought it would help you by relieving stress, or even in one series of ad campaigns targeted towards Thanksgiving time release would help aid in digestion, apparently. But the problem was, the public was starting to be increasingly concerned as to whether or not these claims were actually true and whether or not they were hurting themselves. And so in a move that totally screams not at all shady, these companies started putting doctors in their advertisements, literally making them the face of their cigarette companies in order to help promote the idea that cigarettes are not only safe, but potentially good for you. During the 50s, the first real concrete evidence implicating cigarette smoking as a causal factor for lung cancer started to arise. So the cigarette companies, rather than actually admit, hey, maybe what we're selling to people is, you know, killing them, decided to put everyone's mind at ease by adding what they called a filter system into all of their cigarettes. You know that orange part on all of the cigarettes that people don't smoke? That's where the filter came from. Before then, cigarettes used to be all white. There was no orange portion to them. That orange portion is where you're supposed to stop smoking so that the bad stuff apparently gets filtered out as you smoke it. What we've seen though is that this hasn't really been an effective reduction factor in terms of reducing your risk of contracting lung cancer from cigarette smoking. In fact, all a filter really does in cigarettes is block out the biggest particles of the tar that you're essentially inhaling whenever you smoke a cigarette. What this does is it makes it easier for you to inhale, but this has a downside. That means you're more likely to take in bigger and deeper breaths of the cigarette whenever you are smoking it. So although you won't get the biggest particles when you are smoking, you will inhale the smoke deeper, and as a result, might actually do more harm than good by smoking a filtered cigarette. By 1957, however, the evidence was overwhelming. In fact, so much so that the United States Public Health Service put out an official statement establishing nationwide that there was, in fact, a causal relationship between cigarette smoking and the development of lung cancer in adults. And you would think that these guys would just give up. You know, they'd move on to misleading the public in some other way because Lord knows there are thousands of ways to do that nowadays. What, you don't believe me? The sham wow is still around. Seriously, this dude is selling masks for COVID with the sham wow towel. What the hell is happening? I literally can't. I, I can't. Y'all are ridiculous. I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. If that can still be around after all this time, 
then it's really no surprise to me that cigarettes still haven't kicked the bucket yet. And that's particularly true if you consider how they've managed to frame their campaign and switch up the industry over time. Let's start with what the companies themselves knew. Because you see, the WHO was able to uncover decades of internal documents from a lot of these companies, ranging from scientific reports, legal briefs that the company's lawyers would present to their board as well as their investors. This is really important because a lot of these showed that these guys knew exactly what it was that they were doing. In fact, one of these legal documents published in 1963 as an internal review by one of Brown and Williamson's lawyers stated, quote, Nicotine is addictive. We are therefore in the business of selling nicotine, an addictive drug. Seriously, these guys knew as early as the 60s exactly what it was that they were doing. It doesn't stop there. Internal scientific reports by these companies' chief scientists also found that there were indeed addictive properties, not only in rodent testing, but even in primate labs. They found that chimpanzees would repeatedly and willingly inject themselves with nicotine when they had devices adhered to them that would allow for them to do so. This was a problem because the pattern with which the apes would do this was indicative of addiction. They knew this for decades. So that makes it particularly interesting that when in 1988, the United States Surgeon General came out officially stating that tobacco and other nicotine products were definitively addictive. The Tobacco Institute, which essentially operated as a lobbying group on behalf of the tobacco industry, pushed back against this saying that there was no evidence, scientific, medical, or otherwise, to indicate the addictive properties of tobacco. Wait, 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 hold up, hold up. Now, if this type of shit had happened today, you already know two things would have happened. One, Anonymous would have leaked all these internal documents by now, so we'd have access to them, or somebody would have pulled a Snowden and gotten them on WikiLeaks. And two, Gen Z would unilaterally have pulled a this you on all of the tobacco industry because nobody and i mean nobody survives at this you problem was back then all of these documents were still sealed kept within the company's internal offices so nobody knew that the companies themselves knew they were lying you know how bad it is they got away with this all the way up until 1994 where despite all of this documentation from their own internal sources, from their scientists, lawyers, stating exactly that they knew nicotine was addictive and that that was why people were getting hooked on it. Executives from Brown and Williamson stood in front of Congress during a congressional hearing and said right to their faces, looked them dead in the eye and said, we don't believe at this time nicotine is addictive. Seriously, they lied to Congress. So it's okay when the tobacco companies do it, but when Bill Clinton would do it four years later, suddenly it was grounds for impeachment, a criminal charge. Seriously? I mean, yes, it was about cheating on his wife in the Oval Office, but I feel like misleading the American public on public health concerns is just a little bit worse. But here's the real kicker. It's not just about nicotine's addictive properties. The fact is, these companies knew about its carcinogenic properties as well, and they still went on the record denying it. Selections from internal documents obtained by the WHO that were published in a 78-page report 
that the organization compiled on the tobacco industry's tactics found that as early as 1953, the R.J. Reynolds Company, which was the second largest manufacturer and distributor of tobacco in the United States, had published a series of internal documents stating that they were aware of the medical research which established a positive correlation between lung cancer and use of cigarettes and tobacco products. These guys knew. However, that didn't stop them from using misleading propaganda in order to continue ramping up their profits. In 1954, the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, the parent organization for the Tobacco Institute, published a series of four key claims in a document titled A Frank Statement to Cigarette Smokers. In this, they claimed the following. They claimed that medical research in recent years showed that there were many possible causes of lung cancer, that there was no agreement among the authorities about what the cause was, that there was no proof that cigarette smoking is one of those causes, and that statistics purporting to link smoking with the disease could apply with equal force to any one of the other aspects of modern life. Indeed, the validity of the statistics, quote, themselves are questioned by numerous scientists. Here's the thing, as we've already established, this was just public bureaucracy. It was them trying to save face in the light of all the medical evidence that was being thrown against them. And yet this is not even the shadiest of the things that the tobacco industry would end up trying in order to cover their tracks. Basically, from the 1950s all the way up until the end of the 90s, the tobacco industry's main strategy would simply be to deny, deny, deny. Seriously, you know, just for future reference, tobacco executives, if you ever hear this, you know that if your PR campaign is pulled straight out of the Roderick Heffley playbook for getting out of trouble, you done messed up. Because the thing is, just like an accidentally misplaced set of photos in the wrong camera, this is a very specific Diary of a Wimpy Kid reference for those of you who don't understand, just, just move on. Scientific evidence will not be silenced. The thing is, despite all of your claims against objective reality, nature does not care. And as such, a lot of scientists were doing a lot of good work to expose what the companies were doing. And the crazy part? Half of these scientists worked for the cigarette companies themselves. Confused? Well, you see, a lot of the research that was being done into the clinical effects of prolonged tobacco smoking was being commissioned by the companies themselves. They were hoping to look for evidence that in fact these links were non-factual, that there wasn't actually anything in cigarettes that could give a person cancer. However, remember how I said the RJ Reynolds company went on the record denying a lot of these claims? Well, funny enough, it was one of their chief scientists who came forward in the 60s saying he was noticing an alarming amount of mounting evidence against cigarettes in that it was starting to show that there was a causal relationship. And some of this research that was being done during this time was a little disturbing. You see, from 1967 all the way up until 1970, Dr. Oscar Auerbach conducted an experiment where he chronically exposed 86 beagles to cigarette smoke. Unfortunately, 12 of them developed lung cancer from this study. 
Internal memos circulating throughout the tobacco industry referenced this particular study as evidence that they needed to shift their PR campaign in order to more accurately cover up what was going on. And yet still, they persisted in their pattern of denial all the way up until the late 90s, where they simply switched their tactics to not outright denying that the evidence was there, because by this point, despite the Auerbach experiments questionable ethical standards when it came to testing, what could not be denied was the mounting clinical evidence against cigarette smoking. So the companies panicked. What more could they do than simply not directly answer questions? I'll give you an example. When questioned for the purposes of a magazine interview, John Carlyle of the Tobacco Manufacturers Association on the question of whether tobacco smoking causes lung cancer said the following. There's no shortage of statistics. It's extraordinary the amount of research that has gone into our product and the many varied opinions that people hold about it. In other words, well, you know, a lot of people think a lot of things about it. Am I going to tell you what I think about it? Absolutely not. But you know, a lot of people think things about it. That's it. That's all he had to say about it. And the irony of the situation is that the tobacco companies had the audacity to claim that they had stated the health risks of smoking for years after all of this. In 1999, the US Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against several major tobacco manufacturers alleging that they had engaged in a conspiracy to cover up the public health risks associated with tobacco, both from an addiction standpoint with nicotine, as well as from a cancerous standpoint when it came to the carcinogens contained within cigarettes, as well as the effects of secondhand smoking and the negligible effect of smoking low-tar cigarettes compared with regular. Low-tar cigarettes allegedly were supposed to mitigate any health effects. The reality was, they did no such thing. And here's the kicker. In 2006, Judge Gladys Kessler for a U.S. District Court issued a 1,683-page opinion holding the tobacco companies liable for fraudulently covering up the health risks associated with smoking and for marketing their products to children. Seriously, that has got to be the most overkill clapback in all of United States history. Because the thing is, the tobacco companies claimed not only during this trial, but during the appeal they filed to a higher federal court later, that they had claimed for years to the public that there was a known possible risk to their health if they did smoke. And yet the circuit courts upheld the ruling. They said in 2009 that they would uphold the ruling from the lower federal court. And the Supreme Court, when the same companies tried to appeal to them, said, no, we're not even looking at it. They told you what their answer was. There's no point. Deal with it. Yikes. This was the beginning of the end for widespread cigarette smoking as people had known it. Because now there was no questioning it. This case, titled U.S. versus Philip Morris, which at the time was the manufacturer that had appealed it to a higher court, sent shockwaves throughout the nation. Nobody could deny it now, not even the cigarette companies, because now they had gone on record 
in front of the entirety of the United States under oath claiming that there was in fact a reasonable health concern. And you would think that with the falling smoking rates in the 20 years since, not just among children, but among adults as well, that tobacco would be finished. Unfortunately, to paraphrase my lord and savior, Jeff Goldblum, big business finds a way. And indeed, they found a way to stay alive despite everything going against them. But how did they do it? How did they manage to fool us again and somehow keep making money? Well, to find out the answer to that, you'll just have to stay tuned for next week. Part two of our expose is coming out next week. And Big Tobacco, hang on to your butts, because I'm not finished with you yet. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week.